word here. We're, we're in Ephesus, and we're beginning a series on First Timothy. And Timothy, we like to, to think about because we call it a section of letters that are written to him in Titus, pastoral epistles. And we like to think of him as a pastor, and in a sense, he's doing some pastoral duties, but the truth is, he's a missionary. He's an apostolic representative of Paul, and he's serving with a team when Paul writes a letter in First Timothy to strengthen the church in Ephesus. And Paul writes him a letter, writes this letter to Timothy here, overseeing this work, to show him how to guard the gospel that the church is built upon, that's been passed down by the apostles, and, and how to act as the family of God, which is, in 1 Timothy 3, 15 and 16, the pillar, the flame of the truth of God. And that is a task worth treasure. Now, Paul's already written a letter to the church itself called Ephesians, telling them about this, the, the cosmic story of heaven and earth that they are a part of. What happened in the heavenly places that links the saints on earth? The, the new position and the new way to relate to this body of the living and reigning Messiah, so that God's plan to unite all things in heaven and earth are united in Jesus. And Jesus' triumph over the dark powers results in the book of Ephesians and new lives and new relationships and new submissions and new families and new employer-employee relationships, new allegiances and new resurrection power as your eyes are open to what they had in Jesus. And the victory of Christ empowers the church to participate and standing in Him and embody the victory power in action. That's what Ephesians is all about. Before that, though, Paul had raised up a team of shepherds in three years in Ephesus in Acts 19 and 20 to serve the, the clusters of the believers at Ephesus. And he gives them a final commission to feed and guard the flock and help the weak. Well, we got to ask ourselves, how did all that happen? Everything you see in Acts 20, and the book of Ephesians, and 1 Timothy, and eventually 2 Timothy, how did all that happen? How did the darkness get pushed back, and the light advance and transform lives? In other words, how does God fulfill His promise to build a church, and to build His church? In this chapter here, you have such vastly different kingdoms, don't Clashing. You have an evil kingdom of darkness, and it's not like Star Wars, with a dualism here, of good and evil here. It's the victory of Christ over evil. You have an evil kingdom of darkness, and you have the power of the kingdom of glory. How does the victory of the crucified, risen, ascended, and thrown king advance through God's human, flawed, limited agents in his spirit? And that gets us to Acts 19. Acts shows us a little window in this process of how within the space of 30 years after Jesus' ascension, the gospel travels from Jerusalem to Rome. Acts begins in Jerusalem, of course, in Acts 1 through 7. Then it goes to Judea and Samaria in Acts 8 through 12. And then the ends of the earth, the known earth in that day, where Paul's writing from, in Acts 13 to the end of the book, where Paul ends up in the dragon's lair of Rome. Those that Caesar laid claim over this, this Mediterranean world here, now the new ascended king was reclaiming territory. 
with his message of liberating power that reconciles God and man and man to man. Ephesus might not mean anything to us today, not knowing much about it. It would be located in the modern day country of Turkey, but it was the third largest city of Rome. It was made up of Jew and Gentile, a good Jewish-sized Jewish population, and may have been around 250,000 people. It had a theater built into the side of the mountain that could hold about 24,000 people. It had the famous temple of Artemis, one of the seven wonders of the world. The platform of this temple, and it's 127, I think, or so columns, uh, was about the size of a football field. People came from all over. And stadiums, gymnasiums, public squares in the theaters. But this temple was the most famous attraction, and it brought people from all over the world, a lot of tourists, and a lot of money to Ephesus. And this city would become the place that really is the anchor of the New Testament. Paul would write a lot of letters from the city. From 1 Corinthians, he wrote from Ephesus, Philippians, Galatians, Philemon, and probably most of 2 Corinthians results from this base, the speech head for the gospel. Ephesus was also the place that many think John wrote his gospel from, which is why John talks so much about Jesus and the world. And it's one of the seven churches that John writes to in the book of Revelation. And the other six churches may have been the impact of Ephesus and the gospel that went out there. Of all the places in the New Testament, Ephesus may be the most significant when you consider all everything uh, that came from Ephesus in the church there. Most of the New Testament has some, some connection to the city of Ephesus. Well, what was Ephesus like? Well, imagine Salem, Massachusetts. The Mecca of witchcraft. But make Salem, Massachusetts the third largest city in the U.S. And that's Ephesus. You just get a little glimpse of it already in Acts 19. You have Jewish exorcists. You have pagan shrine makers. You have government officials. You have idols and magic and paganism. All intertwined with the blindness of the Jewish synagogue. You have the forces of darkness and you have the power of Jesus slashing through them in supernatural ways and in very ordinary ways. And so we're going to kind of do a survey of this chapter to see how the Spirit brings light to the darkness and sticks down a hub, church, for Asia Minor about five to ten years before Paul sends his letter to missionary Timothy. This is Paul's third missionary journey. And as a Warren read at the end of that chapter 18, you're kind of introduced to it. But a little bit earlier, <clears throat> in Acts chapter uh, 18, <clears throat> verse 18, Paul after this, tarried there, stayed there a little while there in Corinth, a good while, and then took his leave of the brethren and sailed there from, uh, from there into Syria and with him Priscilla and Aquila, having shaved his head in Centria, for he had a vow. And he came to Ephesus and left them there. But he himself entered into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they desired him to stay longer with them, he consented not, but bid them farewell, saying, I must by all means keep this feast that comes in Jerusalem. But I will return again to you, if God will, when we sail from Ephesus. 
Sometimes you just think Paul just waltzes into a city and starts shouting and yelling about Jesus. The reality is, he goes into a synagogue, and with the customs of that day, he would have listened, he would have engaged in the opportunity times to dialogue, and he, I'm sure, talks about Jesus being Messiah. And as he engages with these, with these Jews, they're in the synagogue, and they began to have their curiosity um, uh, uh, stirred up, and he engages with them. They wanted to stay longer, and he would say, wow, well, Paul, there's an open door, stay there. But Paul trusts the Lord to do something. And he says, I'm going to go do this, but I'm going to come back. And so he leaves and takes care of something. And then you have this other story that's going on. <clears throat> oh, wow. And this is how God works. He takes all different pieces and all different people, right? And so while Paul is going over here to this other place here, you are introduced to this person in verse 24 of chapter 18, Apollos. He's from Alexandria, Egypt. He is very well spoken. He knows the Old Testament, and he comes to where? Ephesus. And is it interesting how God didn't just need Paul, but he brings other people along the way here, like Apollos? And so Apollos teaches the life that Apollos knows. But if Priscilla and Aquila are already there, God has all this work together. Because God's work doesn't depend on just one person, does it? And so Priscilla and Aquila, they're in the synagogue, and they hear, Paul has discipled them, and they hear what Apollos is teaching, and they're like, that guy is gifted, and he knows what he's talking about, but there's something he's missing. And so they pull him aside here, and they say, here's the part that connects and fulfills what you're talking about. And verse 26 says, they expanded or explained him the way of God more completely, more accurately. And the problem was, was Paulus only knew the baptism of John. He didn't, it seemed like there was, a, there was a part of the Holy Spirit and the fulfillment, the fullness of Jesus that he wasn't understanding. And when he gets that here, verse 27 says, The brethren wrote, exhorting the disciples to receive him, who when he had come, helped them much, which he had believed through grace. For he mightily convinced the Jews, and that publicly, showing by the Scriptures that Jesus was Christ. Jesus was the Messiah King. And so here you have, in this first section here, the, 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 the story's kind of laid out in two. You have, you have pairs of things. You have Apollos and the Twelve. The Twelve are going to come up in chapter 19. But there's some, there's some light that they're, that they're missing. They're acting on the light they've received, but there's more to it that they need. It's like, it's like if you're going to bake a cake and, and you got the flour and you got the eggs, but you're missing the water, your recipe's not going to work. And so God comes in and uses people who are seeking light, who are acting on what they know to give them the fullness of Jesus. Um, it's kind of like this. Imagine that you moved to this area and you got hold of a map that was written in 1963. And as you're looking at this map, you're like, oh, okay, yeah, there's Route 17, and there's that, and this, there's this, and I didn't have Route 90 going in 1963. It wasn't the same, right? Yeah, it was a little, little bit different. And you're looking at the map, you get a general sense of it, but you know, something's not quite right, and you need that map updated. And then you get the 2021 edition, right? 
And you see now, okay, it's a little more detailed, and this row doesn't take that bearing off through there. Now it just goes straight through there. That used to be a big boulder, but they blew that apart, and now the road can go through, etc., right? And you're like, ah, okay, maps update. Maps update. And that's what the Lord is doing in this situation, because there's some disciples uh, who have uh, been taught by, by John the Baptist, and they understood a certain part, but they didn't understand the part about the Holy Spirit, which Jesus spends a lot of time talking about in the upper room. And John, the upper room discourse, in John 16, 14 and 16 in particular. And, and, uh, and, and Paul's uh, question to them is not this. Hey guys, um, do you know Jesus? His question to them is this. And this is the hall. This is this is not something that's that's unusual for Paul. This is this is the point of what it means to be a believer. Do you have the Holy Spirit? In Romans chapter eight, Paul will tell the Romans church, if you don't have the Holy Spirit, then you're not his. That's it. The Holy Spirit ministers the life of Christ. What's the Holy Spirit's work? His work since creation was to brood upon the dark chaos of waters and to bring life, you find in Genesis 1, 1 through 3. He brings life. The old Nicene Creed says he's the sustainer of life, provider and sustainer of life. That's what he does. And so Paul says, have you received the Spirit and received the life of God, the life of Jesus, that the Spirit ministers? And they didn't know about that. And Paul says, you need to be baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Spirit. You need to be baptized in the name of Jesus here, so that you receive the Spirit. And so they receive the Spirit. And verse 6, when Paul laid his hand on the Holy Spirit, came on them, and they, as a result, they spoke with tongues and prophesied. This is the last time tongues is, is mentioned in the book of Acts um, here. And, 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 and I know there's whole denominations that build their whole theology on these things here, but I would caution against that and warn you not to do that, because what's happening is this. That's not, that's not God's purpose to say, okay, A plus B, C, this happened, so boom. You know, that's, his point is this. Ever since Pentecost, there have been these echoes of Pentecost with different people groups to validate the message. It happened, of course, at Pentecost with Acts 2, the Jews. And then when the gospel goes to the Samaritans in Acts chapter 8, the Spirit comes upon them, and they're receiving the Spirit, and boom, all they can do is, 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 is declare the words that God gives them. Then when Paul goes to Cornelius, the first Gentile, however, he's a Gentile who's he's pretty, he's pretty nice, to um, uh, yeah, have some sympathies, certainly to the Old Testament, is a practicing, is a proselyte. The Spirit comes upon that first Gentile Cornelius and his family. And speaks, comes. That echo again of Pentecost, that this word is to all the nations. And now we get to Acts 19, and now you're in Ephesus. You're in Salem. You're in Witchcraft City. You're not with nice people who, um, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're sympathetic to everything. Now you're in Ephesus and God's saying, and it's for that too. It's for this city too. The Spirit, the gift of the Spirit is for them as well. 
And so you see Apollos in the 12 here, and God's updating his map here and showing people this is the details here of what it is to be in the Spirit. Well, what happens after that? In verse 8, Paul goes into the synagogue again, where he had been in chapter 18, and he's there for three months. They give him an audience for three months. He's there engaging. And he says he's reasoning and persuading concerning the things of the kingdom of God. That word there, uh, reasoning, is the, is the word for dialoguing. They're having conversations. He's asking questions. They're asking questions. He's explaining the things of the kingdom of God. And it gets to a point where there are people who are hardened and don't believe in the synagogue and speak evil of Christianity, which is called the way. And he takes and he says, okay. And he takes those that are hungry, those sheep that want to listen, and he goes and withdraws them, and he uh, continues these discussions and teaching in the school of Tyrannus. It was a learning center. Tyrannus would have been the guy who ran it. And uh, we don't know if, uh, as one commentator says, his, his mom and dad named him Tyrannus, or his pupils named him Tyrannus. <laughs> but but uh, Paul rents that out. There's a, there's a particular Greek text that has a footnote that said Paul taught from 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. during the heat of the day during this time. So in the morning, he must have done his tent-making um, uh, trade. And then, he, then the heat of the day, he's, he's discipling, training people to Jesus. And this continued for two years. And what was the result? So that all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. Other churches starting to pop out. Here, perhaps those seven churches in Revelation, Colossians, and Laodicea, um, uh, etc. Here, and so here's what I just want you to see here on these verses. Here is, is um, there's 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 the there's the uh, the updating of the map, and now there's the the, the spade work, the spade work. There's a conversing, persuading. There's relationship, there's conversations, there's, there's pointing people to truth, there's finding out what, where the gaps are, people's understanding and, and discipling them here, and that's what's going on. It sounds pretty ordinary, doesn't it? Well, let's keep looking. Because now you have, in verses 11 through 20, you have something big in our eyes that goes on. God worked unusual miracles by the hand of Paul, <coughs> And in verse 11 uh, and 12, so that from his body were brought to the sick handkerchiefs or aprons. By the way, he wasn't charging people for this. He's saying, send me a you know, $100 and you'll get, a, you'll get my, my handkerchief that I lost here. It just was happening that way. And, uh, and our aprons and the diseases departed from them. The evil spirits went out of them. And then there's these guys, these Jewish exorcists, or there's seven sons of a guy named Siva, who's a priest, and verse 13 says, They took upon them the call over them which had evil spirits in the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, We adjure, or, or we, 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 we implore you by Jesus, who Paul preaches. And verse 15, they get an unexpected response. The evil spirit answered and said, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? Here's what they're doing. They don't know Jesus. They see Jesus as a trinket. They see Jesus as a way to serve their own agenda. And this magic word kind of a thing. And they say, oh, well, Paul's doing this. We can do this too. 
in the, in the, in the evil spirit, the demon says, well, I know Jesus, and I know Paul. Who are you? And the man in whom the evil spirit was, was leaped on them and overcame them and prevailed or conquered them. They fled out of that house naked and wounded. This evil spirit came out, and he literally beat the pants off these guys. <laughs> and they're totally humiliated and wounded. And the whole city knows about it. You can imagine the headlines at 6 p.m. that night on the local news, right? <laughs> this was known to all the Jews and Greeks, also dwelling at Ephesus in fear, awe, fell on them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. They're exposed to who they were, charlatans. And many that believed came and confessed and showed their deeds. Many of them also, as Jews, curious or magicards, brought their books together and burned them before all men and accounted the price of them found at 50,000 pieces of silver. Here's what began to happen through that. God exposed darkness, and, and though darkness was powerful, God exposed the power of Jesus as being greater. And people saw that. Supernatural thing, right? And they began to bring things that were in their own darkness and get into the light. And they burned these magic books, these, 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 these books of their magic incantations. And the price of 50,000 pieces of silver was several million dollars here. Went up in smoke. And they were declaring very clearly that Jesus is the Savior King. That their allegiance belonged to Jesus. And brought out the idolatry of their hearts. They realized as they held their eyes before the Lord. And they saw the Lord. Who he really is. And what he does here. That these were ridiculous. And they gave their allegiance to Jesus Christ. And you can see the effect that it has on the city here. Because Paul, uh, Luke says in verse 20. So mightily grew the word of God. And prevailed. Conquering power. God's kingdom is reigning through his word is engaging and it's claiming claim to the evil one's territory. This is, this is what has also been said in verse 10 about the ordinary same work, right? So that all they which dwell in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. And so there's a demonstration here of, of, of allegiance. Um, and the city is being changed. There's a significant critical mass here, people come to Jesus, and things are starting to change in that city enough for people to notice who the one true God is. Well, if that happens, guess what's going to happen next, right? Evil's taking it on the chin. They're reeling. And what happens here because of the gospel transformation in people's lives, people giving their lives to Jesus and receiving King Jesus as their Savior, what happens is it's starting to affect the economy. It's starting to affect the thing that the city had built its, its, its dreams and hopes and idolatry on. This temple. The seventh was one of these seven wonders of the world. And there's a silversmith who makes a lot of money. If you love uh, Luke's um, understatements um, here, he says, brought no small gain to the craftsman here. Um, Demetrius he makes these little, these little idols here uh, to, the, to, to Artemis here, who is a goddess of fertility, that people come all the world for blessing and to see, you know, prosperity happen, and they offer these sacrifices to her. 
And he, he, he brings a speech and he says, guys, first he talks to his own silversmith guild. And he says, guys, our bottom line is going to be hurting here. We're going to be hurting. You know by, that by this craft we have our wealth. And if that wasn't enough, what's happening is Artemis, or Diana, the Latin name for her, is being dishonored. And we know she's the great god of Ephesus. And we have signs that she's the one uh, through this great rock that dropped from the sky uh, into our city here. And, and what's going to happen is not only our, 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 our craft is in danger, but also that the temple that we built this whole city about is, gonna, is, is being shamed here. And this is the goddess who all the world comes to worship and comes to our towns here. And they heard this and he stirred them up. They were upset. And they say, great is Diana of the Ephesians, verse 28. <clears throat> and, this, and it starts to spread through the city. And chaos and riots starting to happen. And they grab some of Paul's companions, Gaius and Aristarchus, known of Macedonia. Paul's companions in travel, verse 29. And, they, and they, they, they take them into the place that can hold the most people, the theater, 24,000 seats, remember, on the side of the mountain. And as they do so, um, uh, there, there's, there's, there's uh, chaos that's going on here, and they, they pull a guy out of the crowd of Alexander, and he tries to explain what's going on, and they find out he's Jewish, and they kind of discount them to show the preeminence of the God they're worshiping for two hours. They're chanting this great is Diana or Artemis of the Ephesians. And then one of the town officials comes up and says, I'm just going to find out about this. They're going to send soldiers in, and we're all going to be in a lot of trouble. So everybody pipe down, and we're going to go to the assembly, and if you have a legal grievance to file, we're going to do it orderly. And Paul, where's Paul in this situation? Well, he wants to run in the middle of it. He's like, this is an opportunity. Talk about Jesus. And some of his friends, who are some of the uh, leaders in Asia, the Asiarchs, here, Easy Arch, Easy Arch, they come in and say, Paul, you need to kind of step back a little bit here um, because we want you around a little bit longer. And so they convince him, they hold him back, <coughs> and it kind of quiets down in verse 41. And 20, verse 1 says, And after the uproar receives, Paul called him the disciples, those believers, and he embraces them. He strengthens them, he builds them up, and he goes on to the next town. Now, is that how your missionary methods would have been? What do we learn about this here? Well, in order to set the stage for what God's going to be doing in 1 Timothy, here with Paul's third missionary journey, he's got a couple under his belt now. <laughs> he's been through some stuff. I want you to see this. To bring light to the darkness and build a hub church. God used, and when I say a hub church, I mean a church that's at the center of a wheel, right? And it will have all kinds of spokes coming off of it and offshoots of other works. To bring light to the darkness and build this hub church, there's a few of them in the book of Acts. There's Antioch, there's Corinth, there's Ephesus. Paul wants Rome to be one of those, which is why he writes a letter um, to the Romans to get to chapter 15 and make sure this happens so they can be a hub church for Spain. But to bring light to the darkness and build this hub church, God uses a whole bunch of people at different stages. You've got Paulus, 
He only knew what he knew, but he was going to be faithful with it. And God updates his man. He got the disciples of John. He only knew the baptism of John. And God takes their hunger, and he gives them the fullness of it here through Paul. And they believe. Um, you got those in the synagogue. Some of them don't want anything to do with it after three months, and others, they want to hear more, they want to learn more, they received it. And Paul takes them into this learning center, and he spends time with them and shapes them. I think a lot of those became some of the elders, some of the pastors, shepherds you see in Acts chapter 20. He uses a whole bunch of people, of different people, at different stages. And you know why? Because he's interested in availability and coaching. Coach the coachable here. You know, that's what, how God works. I don't want to take Acts chapter 19 and say, if this is a prescriptive, everything that happens in this is, this happened then, so this is today. I mean, that's not the point. The point of, of Paul writing the book of Acts is the church planning manual. To show us principles here. And this is a principle, one of the principles I think we can see, because this principle is throughout all of this ministry, isn't it? That God uses different people at different stages. And because he uses different people at different stages, that means there's not going to be other people who are further down the line in their sanctification and growth of the Lord. And by sanctification and growth, I don't mean necessarily just Bible knowledge. Bible knowledge is growth in the Lord. We're to grow in the knowledge of the Lord and in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. The changing, the transforming that God does by His kindness. And there were people at different stages, and the, and the people down on this end there, they had to, they had to, uh, God used them to build these others up. And the people that uh, were responding to the life they had, God, I'm sure, used them to encourage those who had been farther down the line. God uses different people at different stages, and He does this in our church. We're all at different stages in our spiritual journey the Lord Jesus Christ on the narrow road. And God's going to use us all. He doesn't have the super saints, the select saints, the prime saints, and then the, uh, the bottom of the barrel guys. Because he's significantly invested his blood in each of us. He's going to finish that work. And so our challenge to us from this is, where are you? And what's your next step? What's the next thing that God's putting on your heart? And who do you need to help come in and help complete that? And give you wisdom and give you uh, 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 other, other, other points of view and, and help your blind spots. And where do you need to go ahead in advance? Um, I know this. As God uh, allows me to disciple people and train people and invest in their lives, what happens is that I end up being discipled as well by people who... I would say, well, you don't have any, as many years into this as I do. God used a whole bunch of people, of different people at different stages. And then the second thing I think you see is this. God used a team of people with different gifts. You have Quilla, Priscilla, you have Paul, you have Timothy here. He's, he's, in, he's mentioned one time in this chapter, and he's, it's not like Paul's just by himself and in 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 doing all these things. He's got a team of people here. Uh, you got teachers, you got shepherds, you got movement makers, uh, you got truth tellers, you got men and women here. And you know what? The devil also uses different people at different stages. 
He's got a strategy as well. And you know what? The devil also uses things to people with different abilities. Who anticipate there's, there's a clash here that's going on. But Jesus' power is greater. There are different insights, different ways we're wired, different motivations that God gives us in motivated ability patterns that God gives us to do His work. And we need them all. Um, one of the problems with today's church is we have uh, built it to where our Sunday morning sermon is like, that's what church is about. And it's not. The point of gathering together is what that verse we all quote in Hebrews chapter 10 would provoke one another to love and good works. That's the part, that's the point of the assembly. And so I'm one voice, and I have one function. My job, my job is less of a title and more of a function. And you have a function. You have a ways that God uses you. Some of you are, 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 have an entrepreneur kind of mindset. You have, you are, you're a movement maker. You get things going and you have a mindset of, of seeing, uh, advanced. Some of you are, are, are very good at seeing nuances in the text and teaching. That doesn't mean a public teaching ministry. It can, but it can be expressed in a variety of ways. Some of you are, are great counselors and you want to shepherd people and see the Lord um, build them up. Some of you are evangelists in a sense that you have a particular propensity to make sure people hear the gospel and bring people to Jesus. Some of you are truth tellers and the burden of God is, 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 is embedded deep in your heart and when you see inconsistencies and you see us as a church fail, failing to do what the word of the Lord says, you want to call us to that. And make sure you do it properly. But we need your voices. We need your voices. By the way, there's a reason we like all the Old Testament prophets, don't we? Because they're dead. <laughs> prophets speak truth. We need the truth of God. Israel didn't like the prophets. But we need prophets speaking the truth and calling the church to be what God has designed and formed it to be. And we need men and women. Men and women to exercise these things under spirit control. And to do, not like the Corinthians did, just use their gift as a way to build a platform for themselves, but in 1 Corinthians 13, do it in the right spirit and love that builds up the church. So God used a team of people with different gifts. And I can assure you that the devil looks for people's gifts too and abilities and uses their strengths for his purposes as well. And thirdly, to bring light to the darkness and build his hub church of Ephesus, God used some very supernatural things, didn't he? I mean, an evil spirit coming out and beating the pants off these guys. Um, the stuff that went on with the disciples of John, the Spirit was upon them, they speak in tongues and, and, and speak God's word. And there's some pretty sensational stuff that goes on. And we would look at that and say, man, that's proof that God's at work. But when you look at the ordinary state work of how God normally works and say that it is, keep it in balance. Don't just, uh, the, 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 one of the prophets said, don't despise the day of small things. It can get really caught up in the stuff that's super exciting.